Matthew 13, starting at verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary, and aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offence at him. But Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown and in his own house is a prophet without honour. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This John the Baptist, he has risen from the dead. Why is this miraculous... Sorry, that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guest, he ordered that her request be granted, and he had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl, who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus... When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fishes, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. 
Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognised Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. the film Australia, doesn't she? Did you see a show the other night? She dedicated her whole show to the movie Australia and she gave it her absolute ringing endorsement. Uh, Oprah reckoned that she hadn't seen a film as good as that since she doesn't know when. Uh, listen to how she uh, praised the director, Baz Luhrmann. She said to Baz, congratulations on your imagination, your vision, your creativity, your direction. Our hearts are all swelling because this is just the film we needed to see. Well, how about that, eh? They say that in America, everybody trusts Oprah. So that's about as that's about you know 100 million bucks worth of advertising in that one kind of show that she did. Sounds like Baz Luhrmann is going to be one of the most talked about uh, directors in the movie scene uh, this season. But um, Baz Luhrmann grew up in a little Aussie country town, uh, an insignificant country town, and I wonder what people think about him there, where he grew up. I wonder what the uh, people who uh, lived next door to him, and he said on the show that he lived in a town that only had 12 houses in it, I wonder what the people who lived in that town think about him. I wonder what the people who uh, sat next to him in school uh, would think about him. Uh, actually, we can tell a little bit about what people thought about him because his real name isn't Baz. Uh, did you know that? His, his real, real name's not Baz. Does anyone know what his real name is? His real name's Mark. Right? Mark Anthony Luhrmann. Uh, but apparently when he was growing up, the other kids thought that he looked like Basil Brush. I mean, that's hardly very elegant, is it? You know, it's, uh, it's sort of, uh, you know, a possum. It's, it's not particularly flattering. And so when he attends the Academy Awards there at the, uh, the Chinese Theatre along Hollywood Boulevard, uh, you know, the, the media and everyone else will be lauding him. They'll be in awe of him. But if he was to walk down the main street of the town that he grew up in, which I understand was Heron's Creek, just down the road from here, or uh, if he went to a reunion of his school buddies at Herons Creek Public School, where's Nigel, the principal of that school? Is he here today? No, Nigel's jigging church. <laughs> uh, or if he went to a reunion of uh, St Joseph's uh, School here in Port Macquarie, I wonder what they would think. I'm sure they would be lauding him, 
But I reckon there'd be some people be saying, there's me old mate Basil Brush. And now it's not quite, you know, when you know someone, when you've known them as a kid, it's different, isn't it? Because you remember what they were like as a kid, just being the ordinary kid that you went to school with or played cricket with in the street and so on. But what about Jesus? What happened when Jesus returned to his hometown, which was Nazareth? We don't have to speculate because uh, his visit to his hometown is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 13, if you'd like to have that open up in front of you, Matthew chapter 13. Because uh, down in verse 53, uh, we're told that uh, after Jesus had uh, taught his parables that we've been looking at over the last few weeks, that uh, he went to his hometown and he did some teaching in the local synagogue. Now, his hometown people had already heard about the great miracles that Jesus had been doing in other places. We're told here that they were astounded by his teaching, but they couldn't kind of wrap their head around it. They couldn't figure it out. They, they were saying, hang on a moment, we know this man. Uh, he grew up here. You know, his mother isn't, isn't his mother Mary? He's got a few brothers. He's, a couple of his sisters live down the road. Um, how, how, how is it that he could be doing all of this? And so in verse 55, they ask this question, isn't he the carpenter's son? Now, I think that's a good question because it's a question which kind of sets the scene for the whole of chapter 14. Isn't he the carpenter's son? You see, by the time we get to the end of chapter 14, the disciples have decided something profoundly different from that. They've decided that he is more, much more than just the carpenter's son. In verse 33, they conclude that Jesus is in fact not, the, not just the carpenter's son, but the son of God. Now, there's a couple of events in the passage which point in that particular direction. Um, I want to say a few words about those events. In chapter 14, Matthew records for us two extraordinary miracles. And he also tells us about John the Baptist. I'm going to say a few words about John the Baptist in a moment, but for now, let's just look at these two miracles. First of all, in verses 13 through to 21, there's the feeding of the 5,000. Now, actually, if you look carefully at, at verse 21, uh, there probably wasn't only 5,000 people there. Uh, that's only the men. Uh, in all likelihood, you're talking tens of thousands of people uh, were there on that particular day. We mustn't underestimate the, um, the enormous impact that Jesus had that uh, meant that there was such a huge crowd that followed him. And what we see here is that John the Baptist had been killed and Jesus, we're told, withdrew into a, to a solitary place, uh, which could be translated uh, as wilderness. But this massive crowd of people had followed him and some of them were needing healing. And so in verse 14, Jesus had compassion on them. And if you remember... Uh, back to chapter 9 when it says that Jesus had compassion on people it meant that he felt it in his guts it was a raw emotional heartfelt reaction to uh, what he saw it started to get dark and in verse 15 the disciples started to worry about the issue of food because all these people had come 
They're out there in the wilderness. They hadn't come prepared for such a long time. They didn't have food with them. And so they talk to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, how about winding things up? Uh, How about bringing this to a close? How about letting these people leave so that they can go into the towns and uh, get some food from the shops and so on? And so Jesus replied in verse 16 with these words. He says, uh, Jesus replied saying, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Uh, We have only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Well, bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Now, what Jesus did there was was compassionate. Uh, It was also a stunning miracle. But there's more to it than that. Because what he did here reminds us of one of the most significant events in the history of Israel. Do you remember after uh, God had saved Israel from Egypt, that they crossed over uh, um, through the Red Sea, and they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. Remember that? What did they eat when they were wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years? Do you remember? They ate manna. They ate this bread. In Exodus chapter 14, we're told about it. They ate this, uh, this bread from heaven that appeared every morning when they got up and they walked outside and they looked on the ground and there was bread miraculously provided. Now, turn with me just over the page to chapter 16 for a moment. Uh, Have a look at verse 5. This is an incident that happened pretty soon after Jesus had performed this miracle. And it says, when they went out, went across the lake, the the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, It is because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, You of little faith, why are you talking among yourself about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, the the issue there is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had been doing their usual thing. They'd had a go at Jesus. But what Jesus is saying here to the disciples is, why are you worrying about not having enough bread? Have you forgotten what I did with the five loaves? Don't you understand I am the provider. That's what he's saying to them. There they were in the wilderness, just like in Exodus, and Jesus provided. Now, the question then is, what does this say to us about Jesus and about who he is? In the Gospel of John, when John records the same incident, just after the feeding of the the thousands, 
Uh, Jesus spoke to his disciples about Moses and about the feeding in the wilderness, the manna in the wilderness. But he says to them this. He says, The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. You see, what it's saying is that in this miracle, that the miracle is teaching us something very profound about who Jesus is. It's not just a magic trick that he did out there with the food. It's teaching us about the identity of Jesus. He's not just the carpenter's son. Now, secondly, uh, another extraordinary miracle happened. Uh, we see in verses 22 to 33 that Jesus walked on water. Let me read that for you. Verse 22, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside to pray uh, by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down off the boat, walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why do you doubt? Now, some people have tried to explain this miracle away. Uh, some people have said that it's pretty obvious what's going on here, that Jesus was just walking on a sandbar, that that's what was going on. Now, I've got to say to you, these disciples, uh, some of them were fishermen, professional fishermen who'd fished that lake all their lives. Uh, they wouldn't be fooled by that. But more than that, they, um, Matthew makes, it makes it very clear in verse 24 that the boat was actually a long way from the shore. Uh, we're not talking about Jesus walking on a sandbar here. We're talking about something extraordinary. So what's it about? He walked on water, he saved Peter, and he calmed the storm. Uh, in Exodus chapter 14, when the people of Israel came out of Egypt, God parted the sea. That is, he controlled the water to save people. Um, in Job chapter 9, God is described as being the one who walks on water. In Isaiah chapter 43, Isaiah reminds his hearers that God rescued his people through water. So what does this miracle tell us about Jesus? Well, the disciples got it right, didn't they, in verse 32. Truly, they've seen the connection between the God of the Old Testament and what Jesus has just done, and they've come to this conclusion, truly you are the Son of God. He's not just the carpenter's son, he is God, and he's come to save. Now, when some people read the miracle stories, <clears throat> like the miracles of Matthew 14, 
they say that, well, they are a collection of nice stories, but you're not supposed to take it literally. Uh, they say that these are stories which are like fables about Jesus. Uh, they're made up uh, stories which are meant to teach you something which will be helpful for your life. But they didn't really happen. Now, I'm not just talking about people outside the church saying this. I'm talking about church leaders uh, who say this sort of thing as well. Uh, one very famous commentator who lots of uh, Christians used to read back in the 1960s and 70s, uh, one commentator, this particular commentator, I read him, and he said that the feeding of the 5,000 is just a nice story to encourage us to be generous with our food. Uh, how about that, eh? A nice story to teach you to be generous with food. But that's not how Matthew's written it. Uh, this gospel, like all of the gospels, reads like it's meant to be an account of what actually happened. The fact that what happened was stunning, the fact that what happened was amazing, that it was something that just doesn't ordinarily happen, is the very reason why Matthew recorded these things. Right? Uh, the first people who read this gospel back in the first century, when they read it, they read it as being recent history uh, because the people, the events were still fresh. Uh, even the politics was still fresh in their minds. Uh, you see that, uh, for example, when, when you look at what happened to John the Baptist uh, in uh, the first 12 verses. Now, it is a gruesome story, isn't it? Uh, one of the um, non-biblical historians of the time told the story as well. Uh, you can read about the beheading of John the Baptist, not just in the Bible, but in the secular records of the time. Uh, Flavius Josephus uh, was, is the main person that people refer to to get a non-Christian account of this. Uh, Josephus was a Jew uh, who worked for the Romans and he worked as an historian. He wrote a book uh, which is called The Antiquities of the Jews which tells the whole story of the Jewish people up into the first century and he was not a Christian. He certainly knew of the events sur around surrounding Jesus uh, but he did not come to believe in Christ himself personally. But when you read what Josephus wrote, particularly about Herod and his family, it really, it's like, it is like reading a soap opera, uh, quite seriously. Um, on your outlines, I've uh, given a little diagram to show you just a bit of a part of Herod's family. Herod's family is very complex and Part of the reason it's complex is because most members of Herod's family had the name Herod, plus another individual name after that, but also there was a lot of intermarrying that went on, and so it's a bit of a complex web of relationships. Nevertheless, the Herod that we read about in verses 1 to 12 was Herod Antipas. Uh, do you remember the Herod who the Magi went to visit at the birth of Jesus, we read about in Matthew 1 and 2. 
Uh, well, that was Herod the Great. He was the, the father of this Herod, of Herod Antipas. So you're talking about the son of Herod the Great. Um, he had a half-brother who was called Herod Philip. And Herod Philip was not a king, uh, or he was not even, uh, he, he was a civilian, he was not a man of any uh, authority. But he was married to Herodias, who was also his niece. All right, you got the picture there? So Herodias is the niece of both Herod Antipas and Herod Philip, but she's the wife of Herod Philip. Now, Herod Antipas, who, by the way, was also married, went to visit his half-brother and he stayed in his home for a little while. And during that, the time of that visit, he commenced an adulterous relationship with his sister-in-law, also his niece, the wife of his half-brother, Philip. And so Herod Antipas, you with me so far, by the way? Have I lost you? It's complex. I, I've, you, 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 would, you don't know how far I've simplified this down, I can tell you. Right? Herod Antipas went and divorced his wife, which was a crazy thing to do politically because her father was a king of another country and he got so cranky at having his daughter being divorced by Herod, Herod Antipas that he went to war with Herod Antipas and defeated Herod Antipas over it. Josephus talks about that. So he divorced his wife, and then he went and married his niece and sister-in-law, Herodias, who divorced her husband, Herod Philip, under Roman law, because Jewish law wouldn't allow a woman to divorce her husband. So she divorced him under Roman law. Now, it's at this point, and then she went to live with Herod Antipas, and uh, she had a daughter by Philip who was called Salome. Now, it's at this point that the life of Jesus and his followers intersects with the political life of the day. Josephus has a lot to say about John the Baptist, and uh, in summary, you could say that Josephus says that John the Baptist was a good man that he was a man who commanded the Jews towards righteousness and that he baptised people, and that he was highly respected by people. But Josephus tells us that Herod killed the Baptist in his castle because he feared the influence of the Baptist. You see, John was very influential and a lot of ordinary Jewish people were highly offended by the adultery of Herod. They were highly offended by Herod's adultery. But it was the Baptist who, with the courage which comes from knowing God, confronted this ruler about his sin. And uh, in doing that, uh, he greatly angered Herod and Herod had him imprisoned. They had an interesting sort of a relationship because uh, whilst he was in prison, it seems that 
Herod went and visited John the Baptist often and had talks with him. And Mark, in his account, tells us that Herod actually enjoyed uh, uh, talking with John the Baptist and listening to what he had to say, although he didn't enjoy hearing that he was an adulterer. You see in verse 14, if you go, uh, verse 4 rather, it says, Now Herod, verse 3, Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. We don't get the full impact of that uh, in the English because in the Greek, when it says, uh, that he had been saying to him, it, it really uh, means that he kept on saying to him. He wouldn't let up. He persevered and he persisted and he annoyed him like anything by telling him, you're doing the wrong thing, mate. All right? So Herod had him thrown in prison. He wanted to kill him, but he was afraid to because he thought that if he did that the crowds might uh, revolt against him. But Herod, Herodias was not afraid to uh, have John the Baptist killed. She wanted him dead. She didn't like to be called an adulteress. And her opportunity came when Herod, at his birthday party, with all of his mates around, having this drunken sort of feast, quite in contrast to the beautiful feast that Jesus had given the people out in the wilderness, or was, giving, was going to, and overcome by lust for his teenage stepdaughter, she would have been about 12 or 13, he made a promise. A promise which we read resulted in the severed head of John being served up on a plate. It's lovely, isn't it? It's appalling. An appalling story which gives us a, a bit of a glimpse into the life of a uh, first century palace uh, with its uh, drunkenness, its orgy, its violence, its lust, its greed and so on. But it shows us also that when we read Matthew 13 and 14, we're not reading something which is written to be understood as being a fairy tale. Um, the hometown rejection of Jesus the feeding of the thousands, the walking on water, the adultery of Herod, the murder of the Baptists, these are all written as a this is what happened kind of thing. It is a plain recording of the events. What we're reading is first century current affairs. But why was this sordid story recorded right, right here for us? Apart from the fact that it fits in with the chronology, is there a significance to the death of John the Baptist? Well, it seems to me that there is. When we first met John the Baptist in uh, chapter 3, uh, we were told that he came as one, uh, one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. John the Baptist was a forerunner to Jesus. And something of the ministry of Jesus we see in the Baptist. I wonder if you'll come with me to the next page, to chapter 17. Chapter 17 records for us what is known as the Transfiguration, when uh, Jesus and uh, some of the disciples went up to a, a mountain and we're told that uh, Jesus uh, was transfigured, that he appeared as, as like light which was glowing 
and next to him appeared uh, Moses and Elijah and they were talking to Jesus. We see that in verse 3. What an extraordinary experience. The disciples, therefore, when they came down from the mountain, have just seen Elijah. Now, in the Old Testament, in uh, Malachi chapter 4, Malachi said that Elijah would come again, that Elijah would come before the Christ. Have a look at chapter 7, verses 10 to 13. So the disciples have got Elijah on their minds and the disciples ask Jesus, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognise him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Who is the Elijah figure? It is John the Baptist. What did they do to John the Baptist? Well, they, they did away with him. And in the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands, at the hands of wicked men. In the feeding of the thousands... Jesus is shown to be God the provider. By walking on water and saving Peter, he's shown to be God the saviour. In the murder of John the Baptist, we see that this God, who is both provider and saviour, will be put to death at the hands of wicked men. In a few moments, uh, we'll be remembering together the death of Jesus as we share in the Lord's Supper. We remember Jesus' death because we recognise that Jesus is not merely the son of the carpenter, that he is the son of God. He is God in the flesh who died for you to pay the penalty for all of your sin and mine. Jesus is the bread of life. Feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. Put your trust in him and his promise to you is that you will never be hungry ever again. Now I'm not talking about food for your t- food in your tummy. I'm talking about the things which really matter. I'm talking about forgiveness from God for every sin, for every wrong thing that you have ever done in your life, no matter how big, no matter how small, that the death of Jesus means that you can be forgiven of all that you have done wrong. I'm talking about peace with your creator, being fulfilled, living your life to glorify and to enjoy God, the very purpose for which he made you. And I'm talking about eternal life in heaven instead of eternal punishment in hell. These are the things that matter. This is why Jesus is able to say, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry again. 
And so what is your response to God? In this passage, we've seen a few different responses to God. The hometown crowd, well, they dismissed Jesus, didn't they? Uh, Who does he think he is? He's come here, he's teaching this stuff to us. They reckon he's done these miracles. He's just the... He's just the the carpenter's son. Did you notice that Jesus did no miracles in Nazareth because of their lack of faith? There's lots of people today who are like that. They they, they like to think of Jesus in almost a semi-mythical kind of way. Uh, They think of Jesus as being that that little cute, inoffensive baby in the manger. Um, They scoff at Jesus. They ridiculed Jesus. Well, they just ignored Jesus. They lived their life as if Jesus had never existed, as if he means nothing to them. Jesus won't save them unless they repent. That's one response we've seen. We've seen Herod as well, who knew his guilt and felt as guilty as anything, Uh, That's why he imprisoned John, to shut him up. He knew his guilt, but he was totally unrepentant and he killed the very man whom God had sent for his benefit. Then there's Peter. Don't you love Peter? He's the guy who always puts it on the line, isn't he? He's the guy who always steps out and uh, says, well, I'll have a go. Uh, and we said, saw it in this passage that uh, Jesus walking along the water, Peter says, look, Lord, I believe that you can make me walk on water if you just called me to come. And he steps out and then he starts to get a bit nervous and then he starts to sink. And as he's about to drown, he calls out to Jesus with those three magnificent words, Lord, save me. And Jesus reaches down, takes hold of him and pulls him up out of the water. Friends, on the cross of Calvary, Jesus has done exactly that for you and me. We were drowning in our sins. We were heading towards the punishment of God, heading towards eternal destruction in hell. And Jesus, he who is the provider, he who is the saviour, died for us to save us from our sins our only response is to trust in him and to love him for he is not merely the carpenter's son he is the son of God let's pray Father we thank you for Jesus We thank you for uh, how he revealed himself to us, that uh, he is no ordinary man, that he is in fact God. We thank you for his great compassion that he showed towards people. We thank you, Father God, for the way that uh, he, by feeding people in the wilderness, that he has shown to us that he is the bread of life, that we need to feed on him. We thank you, Father God, that uh, he has shown that he is the Saviour. And we thank you that in 
following the same way as John the Baptist that he went to, to death, death on the cross on our behalf. We pray for each one of us here as we reflect on these things and as we uh, do so very tangibly now as we eat bread and drink wine together that we, each one of us, would be men and women, boys and girls who put our trust in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.